You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. I'm your host, David Scales. We are thrilled to have you for what is arguably one of the biggest guests that we've ever had on the show, and that is, of course, Mickey Munoz. I'm actually recording the intro and the outro for this episode here in my hotel room in Boston, Massachusetts. And um, in an effort to kind of keep the show consistent and to update episodes weekly, we've kind of made the studio mobile and we bring it on the road and we've recorded episodes in Hawaii, um, multiple countries in Central America and kind of all over the world and all over the U.S. certainly. And so um, I'm able to do that and I appreciate you tuning in and kind of giving that feedback about wanting more consistent content. The interview portion of this episode, however, was recorded in Mickey's home in Southern California. And it's just really an honor, actually, to even enter Mickey's home and to spend time there. Really eclectic little beach house with just a tremendous amount of surf history. And um, that conversation that we had, actually this conversation that we had, took place over the course of three hours. And so what I've elected to do is actually split the interview into two parts. Today I'm going to present part one to you, and then in two weeks I'll release part two of the interview. Both parts are actually really interesting, I think, in terms of conversation. In part one, one of the things that I really enjoyed was I intended to just really talk about the history of surfing and and Mickey's surf history. But what we got into, in addition to that, was modern surfing. Mickey's got a really fond appreciation of modern surfing. He loves John John Florence, Gabriel Medina, the world title race. He watches the ASP competitions. And so it was real interesting to kind of hear that side of Mickey. Um, and And I really enjoyed that more. And there's, I mean, some of that I would have thought to edit out, but it was so interesting that I left it in. There was other details with the conversation also that I normally would have edited out, such as um, things like little inflections or pauses in the conversation that in hindsight, when I was about to hit the edit button, it was like, who am I? To edit Mickey's conversation, you know, this stuff is really rich for posterity, I think. And so if you don't mind, I'm just going to let this conversation run long because again, I think the inflection and the pauses, even if they amount to dead air, add richness to the conversation. So if you can exercise a little patience and just kind of sit through some of the pauses, I think it, it's important for posterity and it adds to the overall value just to let it run long because after all, it's Mickey Munoz we're hearing from. So with that in mind, I'll give you today's episode. But before I do, I just need to remind you, if you're new to the show, you can follow us on social media 
at Surf Splendor. And I just really encourage you to share the show with friends. You are our only form of advertising. So in order to help the show grow, we just encourage you to share it with friends. And then, of course, rate and review the show wherever you listen to it. If it's iTunes or Stitcher or whatever the podcast app is that you're listening to this show, give us a rating, give us a review, and that just helps other people to find the show. And then all the other additional information that's related to the show or to each individual episode is available on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. And there's also a comment section for every episode. So just go on this episode's webpage and you can leave a comment about what you thought about this episode and share your thoughts on Mickey Munoz just in order to continue this conversation. So I know you're here not to listen to me talk, but to hear from Mickey. So... Without further ado, I give you Mickey Munoz. The Tahiti contest was going on. Right. Oh, oh, the uh, yeah, the, cho- Chopu. the Chopu contest. Yeah, 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 yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, obviously, some of the most incredible surfing and and waves that I've ever seen. And and you know, judging from Kelly's interview before the quarterfinals or during the quarterfinals, when he said, you know, this is the best surf I've ever ridden in any competition, and yeah. that's twenty years of competition. Um, that's saying something. Totally. Yeah. And then, you know, following it through, uh, you know, I've been, I've been judging, you know, surf events for 50 or more years. And, uh, and, and so I can't help, but, you know, be a judge. And, uh, you know, in my not so humble judgment, and of course, I'm only looking at it from, the perspective they're able to show me, of right? Um, John John should have gotten ten across the boards on his last wave in the semifinals with really? with Kelly. Yeah, I, I, there's no question. And I think the ASP missed a a, a real uh, good opportunity to say, "Hey, with permission from John John and Kelly." They're so close. They're even up to this point. Let's give them another half an hour in the water. Hmm. Who would care? Yeah, they would love it. Right. And 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 the reverse, I think, happened in in um, in the finals. I think Kelly should have won the finals. Oh, really? I do. Okay. And in all due respect, sure. To, you know, to um, um, Gabe. Gabe Gabriel. Um, I mean, he was he served fantastically, but I think Kelly was committed deeper and and a little more critical. Yeah, I can't argue with that. It's just Gabe makes it look so easy. I guess you know that he had an amazing amazing rides, and he makes it look easy. 
that's the criticism. I, I'm yeah. I'm a regular footer and I relate to Kelly and I always root for Kelly. Yeah. So I agree that I would want Kelly to win, but it's hard to deny that Gabe, you know, he surfed incredibly. Oh, oh no, no, know? no. Again, of course, all due yeah, respect and, and I'm not taking anything away from him. And and you know, I mean the the obvious one was the only time he ever fell on the whole competition is when he committed deep like Kelly. Right. And he did fall. Exactly. And so, you know, there was just that fine point. But again, I'm only looking at it from the perspective that's presented to us when we're streaming it. Two or three camera angles. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't get the replay and and all of that that the or the total replay that the judges get. So but you know, I do think in the semifinals, I don't think there's any question. I, I I mean that ride of John John's, that last ride was just phenomenal. I know it's so it's splitting hairs at that point. Yep. Uh Scott Bass asked me the exact same question that you just brought up, which is, hey, why not just give them another thirty minutes to surf it out? And while I could definitely see the argument for it, my thought was kind of you can surf a hundred heats and never have as perfect a heat as we just saw. And what you want it to come down to is splitting hairs. You don't want one guy to falter, really, and for the other guy to just run away with it. You want them to get the best rides on the best waves and for the judges to be pressed to figure out what the difference is between a 9.7 and a 9.8. And that's essentially what we got. So I don't know that if we ran another 30 minutes that we would get any more perfect a heat than we just got. But I still want to surf him. Want to see him surf another thirty minutes, you know? No, no, that's a, that's an excellent point, and 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 I I think you're right. But but at the same time, um, because because of the conditions and and the two people that were in the water, uh, you know, it would have been really entertaining. Of course, to, to watch another Absolutely. another half an hour. So. Yeah. I, I again I don't think anybody would have complained and and there might have been there might have been um a little more of a differ, differential than splitting a hair sure. at the end you know okay. there might have been a you know a little more I don't know anyway right. but it 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 is what it is it was what it was and 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 you can't argue it was wonderful what to what degree do you watch these modern-day competitions on the ASP? I mean, are you fully engaged in it? or Pretty much. Really? I, I, yeah, I really um, – I, I mean, not – you know, I mean, I, I'd rather go surfing. You know? <laughs> if the surf's good, I'm going to go surfing, and I'm not going to – although I did go surf that day, and, and I it was during the quarterfinals, and, and – uh, when I got back, my timing was impeccable because I opened my computer and and it was zero to zero, John, John, and, oh, and wow. Kelly. They were just starting the clock. And so I got to watch the that semifinal right after surfing. So. Well, I take it a step further and take my phone in the car with me and stream <laughs> it while I'm driving. And I don't actually watch it while I'm driving, but I just play it through the speakers so I can oh, at least on. hear. You I, can... <laughs> My wife might be listening. I won't arrest you. (laughs) My wife might be listening, so I got to keep it on the up and up. Um, So in regards to the world title race, then, not to make this all ASP talk, but it's an exciting world title race. Of course. Who are you kind of rooting for, and 
secondly, of these kind of new up and comers like John, John and Gabriel that we mentioned, who are you excited to watch nowadays? Well, you know, of course, I'm with you. I'm 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 a Kelly fan, and and uh, and I always have been, and um, because he is he, you know, he is all an aging athlete. Although you wouldn't know it, um, and and he's so exciting, and 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 he's so well knows the game, right? And he's a wonderful diplomat for surfing. I mean, how who could be better than he is? You know, at 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 uh, you know representing surfing in general, right? He loves to surf, and he is an incredible surfer, and. And kind of in that regard, uh, I don't know whether this is pertinent to what you want to know, but uh, I got to judge Kelly, and I think it was the first West Coast competition he was in. It happened to be in Cabo, Hmm. and it was Herbie Fletcher's uh, uh, contest that he had at Zippers, and uh, Herbie had invited the best in the world at the time that could get there. And uh, uh, both longboarders and shortboarders, and so we judged both shortboard and longboard heats. And <clears throat> zippers—I don't know whether you know the wave, but it's a—it's a can be an excellent wave. Yeah. And playful, but but enough of a serious enough wave that it's it's really good. And uh, uh, Christian Fletcher, at the time. Uh, and they had, uh, there was a free surf period where everybody's out in the water just having fun and exchanging waves and hooting. Uh, uh, Christian goes down the line, and right in the middle of the lineup happens to be an exposed rock. And Christian just did this full bunny hop over the rock and air, right? Really? And landed it on the other side and continued down the line, which left everybody totally slack jawed. Yeah. So it comes down to the finals, and Kelly and and Christian are in the finals. And uh, let me digress a second here. Um, So, so longboarding. um, Well, so so through the fifties into the sixties, when when surfing is starting to come of age. At the end of the 50s and into the 60s, um, the point breaks and reef breaks and all the 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 the, the really uh, quality breaks are now crowded. So beginners to intermediates get pushed out to the edges, and and consequently they develop their own style. Mm. <clears throat> They're writing beach breaks. Boards are designed for for them. Uh, their their idea of surfing was getting as many maneuvers as possible before the inevitable happens. It's going to close out, and they're going to have to straighten out or whatever, mm-hmm. or die. Right. So, so that style is opposed to say the point break style, which which was more about coming as close to getting wiped out as possible without getting wiped out. And still make the wave. Hmm. So, back to the finals uh, in in Mexico, 
uh, Kelly and and uh, Christian. Christian is doing these incredible airs, high doing doing stuff that now has fun you know is perfected now, uh, but he's he's uh, he's creating this stuff as he's going along and and uh, but the. And going maybe higher than Kelly. Kelly was doing airs. Kelly was doing doing three sixties and all this other stuff. But the difference between the two is that that Christian would commit, but in doing so, he would blow the rest of the wave. Okay. Where Kelly could complete the dance. He could he could do an air, maybe not quite as high or as radical as Christian's, but at the same time. He wasn't insulting the wave either. It wasn't just a ramp. He was using the wave. Hmm. Anyway, so to me, that was a huge thing where 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 it brought that that sort of uh, skateboard style, and and Kelly kind of brought it into uh, uh, you know to where. It was combined with with the with the dignity and the and the grace of say the Point Break riders and still in, employing you know the 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 airs and and all the rest of it right. and and I've seen the ASP now go through stages and I'll I can even uh, give you another example a couple of years ago. Uh, in a semifinal with with Kelly and um, you're going to have to uh, Australian Goofy Foot uh, Owen Wright Owen Wright they're in the semifinals and and the announcers who are very articulate and knowledgeable have just gone through a ten minute litany on the, the new school in the ASP you know airs mm-hmm. and and all of that and Kelly takes off. On a right, Owen takes off on a left, and yes, the left was a little bit shorter than the right. Kelly did his his whatever he does, and Owen did this incredible took off, did this incredible 360 air, landed it perfectly in perfect harmony with the wave, and and you know continued down the line, and then did something else like that, and Kelly got a point and a half or something more on his wave and I'm going what happened you thought Owen got the better I did hmm. again I'm only seeing it from yeah. the perspective that's presented to to us if we're looking at it on our computers but now whether there were politics involved but sure. that was a year that Kelly won the world uh, title again yeah. and he wouldn't have won it had he not qualified for the main had he been right. gone down in that semifinal i'm not saying that's what happened but sure. but in total opposition to what had just been presented right um, well you know and now it's back to now it's back to respecting more of the power and the and 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 the quality of the ride um as well as all of the, yeah. you know, possibilities of errors and. Let me let me. I got a couple questions. Yeah. Uh, who won? <laughs> who won the final between Kelly and Christian at, 
in, at Zippers. Oh, I'm sorry. Kelly won it. He did. Okay. Oh, yes, so he did. So reflecting your thoughts. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I should. Yeah. I assumed he did based on what you were saying. Oh, but. yeah, he did. And, and, and I mean, there was a lot of controversy. I mean, sure. Herbie was upset. Christian was crying. I literally, I mean, it was wow. like people are, you know, but as a judge and all the judges concurred that, that, you know, Kelly just put it all together, and it was at that time that I just went, you know, that guy's he's going to be the next world champion, and he was. So year what year later, was that? Two years. Early 90s. I don't know. Yeah, yeah late 80s late or 80s. whatever. So, yeah. um, I mean, he was still, you know, he was like 13, 15 or 16 or okay. something. Yeah. So I had never really thought about the um, – you were talking about – the transition, the point breaks got overcrowded. The high quality waves got overcrowded. Yep. And as a result, people ended up surfing beach breaks. And that changed kind of the way that people surfed and board design and all that. I knew that the board design evolution and the way that surfing changed over the years, but I never really thought of it as a direct result of the point break getting overcrowded. I guess you're right most people would prefer to surf the point break and by default be forced out of it. I never thought of that being a cause and effect, really. Well, I think it was. I mean, yeah. it's a way to explain it. I think I, I think that it's that's accurate. what occurred. Yeah. And, and I mean, it wasn't that we didn't ride beach breaks occasionally, but, you know, if you had a choice between Malibu or Rincon and a beach break, you know. Yeah guess what absolutely until it gets overcrowded <laughs> until it gets overcrowded right. and so interesting yeah and so i think and then you know i was shaping and designing boards at that time and and you know you get kids that would come in and they'd want a specific you know boards got shorter more maneuverable and because they wanted to do as many maneuvers as possible again before you know the the wave closed out right and so so it influenced board design for sure yeah and and then you know and then longboard started you know that's 70s say you know late 60s 70s um and then and then you know and then you know obviously it's kind of got swung back and forth sure and and you know, now the point break riders are seeing the possibilities with shorter, more maneuverable boards, and and so, you know, they started they started getting those boards, and and they influenced it because of where they're riding, yeah. you know, the design, and so, you know, that design is swung back and forth between between the the, you know, crossing that line, right, and. And so, um, and I, you know, and again, you, you know, your original question about who would you like to see win the world title and who do you root for? I root for Kelly because nice. I think Kelly was the, he was the glue that brought that all together. Yeah. A, a, a huge influence. Right. Well, um, talking about he incorporated functional aerial maneuvers into the complete dance of yep. the wave. That is definitely true, and it's certainly true at a wave like Lowers, let's say, that where the contest is happening this week there. Um, but I've had people, and you hear the webcasters talk about it, going into J-Bay and Bells, where they, they say, hey, you know, John John is going to be surfing this event, and we're going to see maneuvers at Bells Beach that we've never seen before. 
And they're right to an extent. And I think this year, John John got a 10 for doing a big air at Bells. But at those waves, we haven't fully seen it incorporated successfully. Like John John's 10 that he got, it was a one wave maneuver or one maneuver wave. He did a big air, but he didn't incorporate it into the dance. It was just one section that came, one big air, and he landed it. And at J-Bay, I don't think we've ever really seen anybody incorporate an aerial functionally, you know? Like, that's yet to be seen at those waves. We've seen it at trestles, but not really at the, the real point breaks, you know? And, and, and maybe, you know, and I'll say never, you know, I, I, I will never say never because, you know, you're, you've you're been always, proven wrong before. You've always proven wrong. Uh, but, but again, you know, if you look at it as a dance and your dance partner, um, you know, when you when you can get into a barrel at at J Bay, as opposed to, you know, maybe even coming out of it. Well, I, you know, I I won't say never again because maybe you come out of that barrel, and at the end you've got a little bit of a ramp and you can do a three sixty air, and land it and get back in another barrel. Yeah, it's hard could, to envision. It it. But it could be done, could. and it probably will be done. And and yeah, maybe the rider will get a ten. But all in all, you know, it's going to be barrel riding because that's yeah, you know, that's coming as close to the horns, you know, without getting gored. And right. and you know, it's funny because I'm I'm paddle surfing, right? I've crossed to the dark side. Stand up paddle. Stand up paddling, right? And and so when I get a surfer that's going, well, I don't get it, you know, what you, what, you know, and I go, okay, well, look at all the best tube riders in the world. They all use their hand in the wave. Well, the paddle blade is a, is a foil that's more efficient than your hand. Hmm. And so I see the paddle blade as this wonderful hand hmm. that you can use and incorporate in the wave. And, and, even though, you know, John John started doing stand-up backside barrels at Chopu, and Kelly followed suit equally well yeah. and maybe better in some respects. So, you know, maybe they don't always have to use that blade and and or their hand, but but. You watch the tube riders; they're 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 doing that in most cases. So is that to Not say every time? Is that to say you're getting barreled on your stand-up paddle? Then it's a little harder on a stand-up <laughs> paddle board, so, yeah. but but you know the boards are. I mean, I'm riding a board now that I couldn't have stood on a year ago. So because it like it's smaller, basically. Oh, yeah. yeah. So and the kids are riding boards so small that. They can't even paddle them outstanding. They have to prone paddle them all. Really? So yeah, you know there's some down in the six foot category now, and, and I haven't seen that. And uh, and well, I'm like I'm riding a seven ten. I rode, I rode another one the other day that was seven six and 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 an inch narrower than the one I'm riding now, and thinner. And so, I see next year being on a much smaller board and and. And so, and that's not always an advantage. I mean, Big sure. Wednesday I was riding my nine six stand up gun, which I'm glad I 
road. Well, and, and I had a huge advantage over over 99.9% of all the surfers except for sup surfers. I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about the stand-up paddle stuff more too. But um, before we get into that, yep. you mentioned Big Wednesday. Hurricane Marie was yeah. the swell. You and I were kind of trying to figure out a date to do this interview, and then that swell came and postponed the interview. Where'd you surf? Oh, I surfed. <laughs> I surfed Slohini. Oh, did you? <laughs> I did. Okay, yeah, I saw it. Was looked like it was breaking way outside, and looked like the reform on the inside was incredible. Yeah, it um, it was probably the best I've ever seen it. Out of how many years have you been well, here? Well, I've been surfing there since the fifties. So wow. I've ridden a lot of waves there, and and I think I caught the best wave I've ever ridden there. Really? Uh, yeah. On, on the stand-up paddle? On Wednesday, oh, yeah. How, I, how big was it, do you think? Um, I had a very reliable friend who's a shortboard, longboard, funboard, stand-up board rider who can ride anything and very well. He's a very good surfer, and I've surfed with him a lot, and he's a bright guy. He called triple overhead. Yeah, I would say so. Yep. Yeah, and and I think if you had been patient enough and lined up with the outside breakwater right on the edge, you could have ridden all the way through the park. Hmm. As it was, I I uh, I almost opted for paddling out the harbor mouth. Oh wow! To get out, and uh, I decided that that if I couldn't, that's what my option would be if I couldn't get out right. normally. I opted to try normally to get out because I figured if I if I rode a wave and got trapped inside, then I'm going to have to walk all the way up the beach and over the breakwater and, yeah. you know. So, uh, uh, I, and I actually, I got out almost without getting my hair wet, as it turned out, because wow. I, I stood there for a bit and made sure, you know, I had a little bit of a, a opening and and managed to get out. And I talked to a lot of people that never made it out. So Right. But I, anyway, I paddled out and probably spent an hour standing before I got my first wave. Because I went outside, outside, but not all the way to the harbor entrance. And, uh, I mean, I a couple times I had to just dive off my board. I got caught inside waves breaking 100 yards outside of me and um, as it was I finally got a really good size set wave from there so I got a pretty darn good ride on that way inside pulled out paddled back out almost to the same place and another half an hour I got another wave that wasn't quite as good but still okay and then I realized that if I really wanted to surf I had to commit to inside Okay. And and so I did. I I went inside and I started well, inside, let me clarify, would be outside on a big day, right? right. On a normal day. Right. So I'm kinda and, and that's outside outside. But I'm still inside the now outside on Big Wednesday and and uh then I got I got a half a dozen rides in there and then this one set came through that kind of reformed and doubled up and was at least double over my head and and actually there was a longboarder in a posi- in in the better position next to me and I nodded for him to you know it was his wave and he missed it so I went okay the next wave you know 
he's not getting a free he's pass. Not, yeah, I'm, I'm going for it. And luckily I did because it it was, I think, the best quality wave I've ever ridden there. It was a Mackin doubled up, real wave, real power, perfect shape, full slotted for 200 yards. Really? Just, yeah, it was, it was an amazing wave. And, wow. And, and, you know, I pulled out and, you know, I had this big shitty grin on my face and, and paddled back out and I caught a couple more waves and then I just went, that's ah, about as good as it gets. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Did anybody see it or acknowledge yeah, it or anything? Yeah, a couple, a couple couple people. One who I haven't talked with since then, who I, I sup-ride with a lot, who's a real good surfer that was out. Another one that's a longboarder that was out uh, in fact, we were surfing together yesterday, and and he re-acknowledged that wave, good. and he said, yeah, that was a booking wave. That was, yeah, that was really good. I hate to be that superficial that somebody else's acknowledgement would matter, but it does seem to. You know, when you get a good wave like that, and you, you think it's good, but to have somebody else validate it does kind of matter. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah. And, and And it's so funny because there were... You know, a lot of people should not have been out that day. And I, in fact, I don't know how some of them even got out there. Yeah. You know, I, they just totally lucked up. And, and there were people like sideways, you know. And one wave, I and, and I got a lot of really good waves, but that one was outstanding. But one of my really good waves, I'm just fully slotted in this wave. And there's a guy on a shortboard. And, and, you know, he was frozen in fear absolutely frozen he couldn't and luckily didn't move because the only problem i had i thought he might go over the falls on top of me because he was kind of not he didn't know to paddle out or oh which yeah direction. no he was yeah. just frozen and he was screaming literally really? screaming in fear yeah just screaming thought you were gonna mow him i over. guess you know but anyway um crazy yeah it was it was uh it was an outstanding day and actually i went back up where i normally check the surf and i because that day was totally a positioning game Mm -hmm. and and so if you were not in the right position you weren't going to catch a wave period and a lot of people didn't and so i went back up where i checked the surf from and and spent another half an hour at least you know, shooting some photos and and reevaluating position for the next day, so that you would know. Yeah, and yeah. the next day was actually quite good, also. Right. Not as big, but right, really good. That's awesome. Yeah. Good story. Um, let's go back in history a little bit. <laughs> okay. Um, you began surfing in 1947 in Malibu. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I think I no probably my first surfing experience um, was probably at State Beach or Santa Monica, you know, inside the breakwater in Santa Monica, um, and was probably I don't remember exactly I I I uh, got my mom to sponsor me for a a board uh, in 1948 I bought a. I bought a paddleboard, uh, which was, they called them kook boxes, right. um, called a Surf King Junior, and uh, it weighed about 50 or 60 pounds, and almost what I weighed, and I had to 
I had to I could drag it down the beach and get it in the water, but after trying to surf it, I'd have to end for end it to get it back up the beach, or somebody would have to help me carry it. And uh, the lifeguard at Santa Monica State Beach uh, showed me guy by the name of Bob Burns showed me how to make a fin for it out of the back of an apple crate and hmm. and and screw it and uh, glue it onto the board to give it a little more directional stability and so you know my first probably experience was in 1947 but I didn't really get a board until 48 and then in the winter of 50 1950 I uh, again, my mom came through. Thank you, mom. Uh, uh, I bought a, a quig surfboard that he had made for his wife, Aggie, and it was right around Christmas time and he needed the bucks. So I bought it for $55, brand new board, 810, 24 inches wide, 16 inch tail block balsa board. Solid balsa. Solid balsa. And that was. From that time on, then I was scamming my way to Malibu any way I could get there, hitchhiking or getting rides with friends because I just missed getting my driver's license at age 14. Oh, okay, because the law changed? Yeah, the yeah, law yeah. changed in my months, you know. Right. But, but uh, yeah, so. Um, I guess you were, in your book, I read that you were growing up on uh, Uplifters Ranch was Up the name Lifter. of it? Yep. And can you describe that environment and what the scene was like? I know Santa Monica and that area has changed significantly since then. So what did it look like back then? Um, well, I don't know. You know, Santa Monica was was pretty well established. Um, if you were to look at, uh, you know, start with the coastline, PCH, you know, um, Highway 1, um, and, and where Sunset Boulevard... Um, goes goes uh, comes th- kind of through West LA Santa Monica and then goes over the hill through the Pacific Palisades and comes back down to PCH and then if you were to go south from there three miles or so you would get to Santa Monica Canyon which would de- delineate uh, and that that uh, road that came from the ocean and went uh, back up or through the canyon and up to Santa Monica, there was a big patch in there that almost diamond-shaped patch that that uh, or triangular-shaped patch that uh, was kind of below the above the canyon but below the Pacific Palisades, mm-hmm. uh, bordered by Sunset Boulevard on one side, okay. Santa Monica Canyon on the other, and and course the coast highway and so there was this area up there that originally was was called the cup lifters and they had a they had a a country club and a a olympic sized swimming pool and tennis courts and and uh, uh, stables and um, outdoor theater polo grounds and and a stable and outdoor theater and it was kind of the you could say around the you know turn of the century it was it was kind of the beach getaway before okay. Malibu for for people in 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 LA and Hollywood movie people and and politicians and so forth and 
And uh, when we first moved up there, there were dirt roads. It was all dirt roads once you got in there. And they had changed it uh, from the cup lifters to the uplifters because now families were actually, uh, you know, uh, living there and they f thought that was more appropriate than cup lifters. And, and right up the street, Earl Warren lived and, and across the street, uh, uh, the first Tarzan lived and uh, Johnny Weissmiller and, mm. and later Lee Marvin bought that house. And so our house was a seven bedroom, all redwood house on an acre. Wow. And if you drive through that area, uh, you know, the lots are, I think, still the same size. They were all mostly acre one acre lots at least on our side and and uh, um, it is one of the most beautiful places uh, they they had the largest grove of coastal redwoods oh, that okay. far south and they experimented with fauna and ferna and and and, and uh, again because uh, there was a lot of money that had gone in there originally and and they created this amazing environment that yeah. was walk, walking distance from the beach. And so that's kind of where I grew up. And It and sounds idyllic. Pretty good. Like rugged, yet celebrities, yet the beach is right there. And yeah. yeah, it was really ideal. And, and, and a lot of the Spanish land grant uh, ranches, Leo Carrillo and, and so forth, were in that surrounding area. And so... Uh, it was pretty exclusive, and, and of course, State Beach, uh, the advantage growing up there, Wilbur Rogers State Beach, is that it was very eclectic. Mm. So there were movie people, there were, there were, there was a gay community, there were, there were musicians and artists and surfers and, you know, just beach people. Right. So... You know, as a kid, to grow up in that environment and get exposed to all of that stuff was really special. Sure. Yeah. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, you said that you started writing that kook box, and the lifeguard had to tell you to put a fin on it. And then later you got the balsa board, obviously. Joe Quigg was making boards. That's right. What were most people writing at that time? Uh, you know, it was right at the end of the of the 100-pound redwood balsa era. Okay. And, and there were few people writing those. But, but by then, uh, balsa wood, you know, was being used. And, and, and uh, you know, some... Some of the, I, there was a, and I'm trying to remember his name, uh, Johnny Johnson, I think was his hmm. name, if I recollect. But okay. he worked at, at Douglas Aircraft, and Douglas Aircraft had been experimenting with fiberglass and resin. Oh, and okay. so he would uh, abscond with some of the materials, and they, they, you know, found that it worked as a good covering for balsa wood, which made balsa wood, you know, uh, waterproof, if you will. So you could, rather than varnish, uh, you glass the balsa wood boards and they became more durable and and uh, and that kind of opened, opened it up for, you know, because I'm a little, I'm little and weak and, you know, made yeah. it so the girls and I could surf, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it was, again, timing was everything and, 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 it was kind of at the end of the war. Malibu was was, you know, had had its uh, group of surfers that that surfed there, but it was you know, I don't know, fifteen twenty five people that okay. would surf there, you know, uh, off and on, right. but but consistently and and uh, and and because of the fiberglass. Uh, and, and resin, uh, and then that became available retail. Um, you know, and th- at that time, uh, you know, we used a catalyst called Garalist, which was this kind of yellow paste that you hmm. mixed with the with the resin, and and it was a sun cure resin, not okay. not a thermal cure like the, you know, anyway. So, so that. Now just shaping a balsa board without the redwood and everything, and the board's getting smaller and lighter and smaller. Um, uh, it brought about more innovation and allowed us kids to to get more creative on them, right. if you will. And and so there was this young group of kid surfers that started surfing Malibu and pushing each other. I mean, shoot, we've got this this uh, consistent, one of the best consistent waves in the world to yeah. ride. And, and uh, you know, so you're putting each other on and, and being creative and, and laughing and hooting and yeah. spending all day in the water. And there wasn't really a crowd sure. to deal with. So um, two of the key players kind of in that scene were obviously Joe Quigg and Matt Kivlin. Yep. Um, 
Can you explain kind of who they are and then maybe tell the story about your first job as a paperweight? Yeah. <laughs> so, so Joe Quigg, um, you know, Joe, um, I think he went to, is it Juilliard? He, he went to an art, uh, art school and, and got into photography and, and you know at that time there was no one commercially making surfboards and you know joe had the talent and and the the creative uh uh juices to to you know shape and design surfboards and and you know i bought you know the board he made for his wife aggie and 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 you know other people ricky Grigg. You know, he wanted a board. He got a board from Joe mm-hmm. because, you know, Joe was trying to make a living and, and photography, I guess, wasn't, you know, sure. satisfying that. So he he started shaping boards and selling them. And Matt Kivlin, uh, who is a architect, and, and Matt was this... Um, icon surfer a tall handsome guy um, who I think Dora Mickey Dora actually replicated his style Matt's style because they almost looked the same okay. and and and, uh, and so I think the physical characteristics sort of uh, dictate somewhat the style of the rider sure and uh, you know Dewey Weber, short, stocky, strong, you know, quick, you know, his style was definitely uh, almost opposite Matt Kivlin's. Mm. And so, so Matt designed, again, Matt in the position of of passionate surfer, um, you know, making boards for himself and, and, and somebody comes along that wants a board that he wants to surf like Matt, and Matt right. would make him a board, and and so. Uh, so they were were they friends as well? They were both contemporaries oh yeah. making boards side by side, oh but yeah. they were also oh yeah. Oh yeah. friends, sure. colleagues essentially. Yeah. And 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 you know, Velzi's kind of in uh, South Bay, and he's he's kind of doing his thing. This is like very early fifties, and and and. Uh, you know, there were a couple other people on the coast that were were doing kind of getting into the surfboard making business that sure. way. Matt never did it. Joe kind of did it. Um, uh, of course, Velzi, as you know, obviously did it. Hobie later on in the mid '50s or whenever he got really started. Um, you know, all these guys, passionate surfers, yeah. uh, with either create, you know, had the creative again, creative juices and stuff. So, so they were, they were, and and as the, as it got more refined, uh, you know, more people got knowledgeable about dealing with fiberglass and resin. Sure. Um, then some people specialized in glassing, so that took a little relief off of the shaper who's now getting more orders and they can shape and, mm-hmm. and, and, and so the business kind of developed that way. Um, and know, how I, did, what was your first job then? Well, well, you know, Matt and, and Joe would, would bring balsa boards 
to Malibu and, and, you know, balsa blanks and, and, you know, because they wanted to surf and make boards and, and. So they bring uh, them to the beach? They bring them to the beach. Okay. And, and so they'd set up their horses on the beach and, and, um, you know, the tools, uh, nobody was using power tools, so right. it was all hand tools. And, and so, um, you know, you'd use, you'd use a, uh, carpenter's uh, crayon to to either draw the the outline out on the balsa blank or in Joe's case uh, which I dearly loved he would he would take butcher paper and he would he would draw the plan shape out full size on it one side and the other side would it would be asymmetric Mm. And he would look at them and decide which one he'd like, fold it in half, and then cut the outline he liked out, and that would be his 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 uh, template. Nice. And uh, in fact, one of the other things that Joe did, uh, which which I I really loved, was he would he would take these templates, or or this butcher paper, draw outline on it. And then he'd pin it up above his bed, and he'd lay in bed, and he'd look at it, you know, overhead. And then he'd, he always had his carpenter's crayon there, and it, he would he would modify that that outline until he got what he liked. Interesting. The other thing he did, which and this is a little later on when he got into into designing boats, um, he 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 would take um, he would take the the hottest boats of the day. Um, they're long, skinny, narrow ones that would be really good to weather. Shorter, fatter, wider ones that would be better off the wind. And he would scale them all to the same length, draw them on graph paper, and and he kept overdrawing all these different outlines until he got this this outline that was kind of the the average between the long ones and the short ones. Okay. Because somewhere in there, there was... And, yeah. And that would be his his outline that would be kind of all around. And that's kind of the way Joe surfed, and that's kind of what how he designed. Mm-hmm. And... And Start with the extreme and just whittle it back, kind of. Kind, the, kind of thing. He would he would find the average what worked okay for both, and right. then you could once you got there, then you could go either direction. If you wanted to bigger waves, you needed the longer, sure. narrower, skinnier ones. You could go in that direction, or or converse to that in little waves. You know, as the fish shapes developed and so forth. So, uh, back to Malibu, the the blanks on the beach. Well, you know, again, uh, all hand tools. So, one of the uh, tools you'd use to rough shape with would be an adze, which would be like a, a pickaxe with a broad head on it, okay, and sharpened, and and uh, you could you could lay the blank down in the sand, stand on the blank, and then use the adze to 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 peel out big chunks of balsa wood until you got it down to a you know down to a reasonable level and then and then up on the horses 
you'd use a draw knife. Well, okay. if you're in the back and the tail where you could put the blank against your chest or stomach and use a draw knife to keep the board from sliding off the horses, that was okay. But it was way better to have a paperweight sitting on the on the blank so that you could you could use that draw knife anywhere on the board with impunity and 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 accuracy and so that became my job and the pay at the end of the day they'd go up because i was too young they'd go up to the malibu inn buy a couple quarts of beer and come back and we'd take the balsa shavings and have a have a you know fire on the beach and yeah burn the chips and drink beer and talk stories so Sounds like a perfect gig for a kid, man. Pretty good. Sit on a surfboard with your heroes watching the waves and then just drink beer with them. And that got that's what I think was the catalyst for me to become a shaper because I I really enjoyed the process and I loved how how Joe shaped um, you know, he 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 was a sculptor. Okay. He would sculpt and and I just loved that that process and just you know appeal to me so yeah um, this may be jumping ahead a little bit but how did that evolve into then working with hobie i mean can you remember the first board that you shaped and yeah i i actually uh i you know i got i got into repairing boards and you you know um actually i had a kind of a repair business and okay my first trip uh to hawaii was in 1954 so i I I did some repaired some boards, sold a bicycle, borrowed some money from my mom, and wrote her a note: "Dear mom, going to Hawaii. Love Mickey. P.S. I will write." Oh and, my gosh! And that was how it. did she respond and to that? I went on a one-way ticket with six dollars in my pocket when I landed. So, you know that. But that's another yeah story. Sure. So sometime around that time, I I got a balsa blank, and I wanted to make myself a board. So I got. You know, I got a bought a draw knife and I got a block plane and I got you know sandpaper and and a saw and you know the tools I the rough tools I needed to make a board and made my own outline and everything and then it was kind of the proverbial toothpick syndrome where you start big and end up with a toothpick. I, yeah, I kept screwing up and not knowing what I was doing and 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 the board got smaller and smaller and finally got down in seven I don't I don't remember what I ended up with I probably started with a nine foot balsa blank and ended up somewhere in the seven foot range seven yeah. six or seven four or something like that and pretty darn thin uh probably around two and a half or so thick and 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 kind of pulled in pointy board and not easy to ride hmm. I, I wrote it for a while and and then uh, uh, you know I digress again um, uh, Matt and Joe went to Hawaii uh, and and I, I'm not sure whether they went uh, together or or the same year or whatever but very early in the 50s and Matt met a guy by the name of Bobby Patterson who who's nicknamed the flea and and Bobby was probably the best small wave rider in the world and so Matt kind of sponsored him to California because Bobby wanted to come to California and Bobby and I met up at Malibu and we're surfing together and stuff and 
and Matt at the time was just getting married and and Bobby had been living there and he felt kind of uncomfortable because of you know Matt and Diane and and so uh, you know we had this giant house my 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 parents really liked Bobby and so I had my own room with my own bathroom and and entrance so you know Bobby ended up living at my at our house okay and so Bobby and I are you know really you know surfing partners and and friends and stuff and Bobby had two other brothers Ronald and Raymond uh, Raymond uh, Ronald um, by the time I went to Hawaii in 54, I think Ronald had had moved to California and Raymond was the only one left and when I and in Hawaii of the three brothers and and when I went to Hawaii in 54 I met Raymond and and then shortly after that Raymond came came to the coast but back to the balsa board I rode it for a while and then Ronald needed a board and Ronald was a good surfer too so I gave Ronald the board and Ronald loved it hmm. and he rode the heck out of it in fact uh, there's a, a photo of Ronald and I don't know where if I have it I doubt it but there's a great shot of Ronald at Wind and Sea on that board really yeah and slotted into a pretty radical wave and yeah and uh, so, you know, the board was kind of a success because of Ronald, not because of me. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I think that was my first first board, and I, I don't remember 52 or 3 okay. or something like that. I wonder where it is today. Oh, I'm sure it was probably tossed in the dump somewhere. <laughs> That's a shame. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've met obviously a tremendous amount of people over the years that are worth discussing. I don't know how many we can really get into, uh, but I'm interested in your first experience seeing Phil Edwards because you talk about that being influential in the book. Yeah, I, you know, my mom, uh, again, thank you, mom. My, my mom brought us out from the East Coast and to California and and she was a real outdoors person. So she, you know, she... She would take us kids hiking and yeah. you know camping and stuff. So we went, and I can't remember who was uh, there. Might have been Ricky, and I don't remember who. But we went camping down, um, and I can't quite remember below Oceanside in one of the estuaries. Behind there, there was a little camp place, and okay. and we were camp there and you had to paddle across the estuary to get to the ocean and and uh and i've asked people since then but there was a little place called waiuli point okay and that's where phil uh surfed a lot i i didn't really know that or i may have known it but i you know you knew of him by name though at that point i knew of him by name okay and I'm paddling out. I paddle across the estuary and walk across the sand spit. And and there's some fun little, you know, four foot, three to four foot waves. And, and I'm paddling out. And Phil takes off on this wave out on the end of the point. You know, he's probably 20 or 30 yards or 40 yards away from me. And he kind of 
walks up, he sets up his turn, he turns and he kind of sets up, trimming forward on the nose, and and he comes to a, a pretty steep section and his tail just slides out, but very, very smoothly. It, it, it totally kind of slides out of the wave and Phil just casually without, without rolling up the, <laughs> the, the windshield or, or, you know, the, yeah, the, the window, he, he just casually backsteps, resets the fin and goes down the line again. And I just, it, I was stunned. I hadn't seen anybody do that. And that just totally endeared me. Did you know when you saw him taking off on the wave who it was? I think I did, or I I wasn't sure, but yeah. but but again, because I only knew him by name, and I think I knew that he surfed there, but I wasn't sure. But yeah. after that move, I was, I I think I was pretty sure who it was because right. he, even then, at that time, he had a real rep as hmm. being one of the best, if not the best. Amazing how impactful, like you can still remember that wave now, 50 years I later can, or yeah. 60, you yeah. know. Yeah. I, there's a couple of waves that I've seen with well-known professional surfers where I didn't know they were in the water, but you kind of see their silhouette as they're taking off. So you can't make out their face or anything, but just the way that they surf the wave, you're just blown away by, and it really is impactful. Yeah. And then by the time they get down the line, you're like, oh, that's Chris Ward, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. He surfs well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Phil, Phil was a huge, huge influence. Although you know we're obviously different personalities and different builds, so I could never emulate Phil. But I always, you know, respected his style and 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 his grace and his power. And yeah, you know, that was a huge influence. On oh, absolutely. Bob, Bobby and I were more stature-wise closer together. And, sure. And so. You know, we surfed all the time together, so, you know. Did you and Phil become friends after that point? Yeah. And I don't remember exactly when, but I think Phil started coming to Malibu. And then because of that, we we became friends. And, 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 uh, and, and then... Uh, I moved... I moved to Southern Orange County... Um, in the late fifties and, and, uh, Phil trying to remember when, and I think Phil was living here then. I think he started living here and then he, he was a shaper at Hobie's and, and I, um, I started at Hobie's, um, learning to patch boards only. I, I mean, I had done it in the past, but, but but learning to do it on a on a sort of commercial basis if sure. you will and uh and so i started off and that's when hobie hobie had built that building up in dana point and it was the first building dedicated for the manufacture of surfboards right specifically and i think anywhere in the world yeah and so that's where i started as an apprentice right and and working working in there and then getting into the glassing aspects and and working my way until finally uh some years later um as a shaper yeah and again 
having mucked around shaping a few boards or trying to shape a few boards, uh, then I really learned. You know, right. then then guy by the name of Ralph Parker, who was one of Hobie's, uh, you know, shapers at the time, Terry Martin and Phil all helping me and teaching me how to shape really shape sure so that in production right um dora mickey dora is kind of a polarizing figure and i know you spent quite a bit of time with him there's a story in your book about rocketeering as you called it (laughs) and there's another story about having lunch with him at a place called vans in laguna um what was your experience with Mickey and do you want with Dora and do you want to retell those stories at all or? Well, I can. Yeah. You know, um, Mickey was a, you know, kind of an outlaw and, yeah. and, and, but very creative and very bright and, and obviously an incredible surfer and passionate surfer. Um, we, you know, growing, growing up, uh, at Malibu and, and, and Dora coming up there because, you know, it was an incredible wave. So, so Dora spent a lot of time there, and we we became we became friends, and 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 you know did a lot of stuff together. In fact, that first trip to Hawaii, it was Dora, myself, a guy by the name of Jimmy Fisher, and and another guy, uh, Mike Donovan or Mike Donahue. He went by both last names. Oh, okay. Um, you know, we we uh, made that first trip together to Hawaii and and moved into a, a house for twenty five dollars a month, split four ways. So that just about ended my six dollars when I got there. <laughs> <laughs> first month rent. The first down the month rent. Um, but anyway, um, uh, the rocketeering. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, again, Mickey's creative mind and so forth. Uh, um, Mickey built this six-foot, uh, basically turned out to be a pipe bomb. But, okay. But, but, but it was a galvanized uh, and an inch and a half pipe or inch pipe, and and uh, uh, he 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 shaped and created this. Sputnik for the end, right? Which was the Russian first Russian uh, capsule to space, and had it all painted up and everything, and and had you know made the fins and everything, and then of course the the orifice that the 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 propulsion was to, to come from was a big issue, and and you know he's doing doing all these calculations, and and we're you know, and I'm kind of on the periphery, you know, um, kibitzing on design fin, fins and so forth. And and one of the things was to go to Tijuana to buy, uh, you had to buy the stuff pitric acid, which you, you couldn't buy uh, locally. And okay. so, so that was a, you know, big adventure. And, and then I, I can't remember, I think it was sulfur and pitric acid that you mix together okay. in, in a certain combination, and that was the that was the uh, uh, fuel. And a lot uh, of and thought a di- went into this thing. Yeah, oh, yeah. And time. No, yeah. no, there was yeah, and a dynamite fuse and wow. everything, or a di- uh, yeah, dynamite fuse and stuff to ignite 
so it comes to the the big day, right? All the preparation and everything, and and so it's I, it's winter time at Malibu. There's no surf and, on the beach. On the beach, and there's no one, no one around, and so except for friends that are in on this on this experiment, <laughs> and we du- actually dug bunkers and everything, you know, and and build a launch platform and had the had the rocket sitting out on the beach ready to launch and and one of the guys involved had just broken his ankle or leg or something and he was he was in a cast and on crutches so we made him light the fuse wait i read that in the book and i just thought just out of sheer being mean to him or why oh no because he wanted to and we thought well you know but he's the least likely to avoid to be the able to run for it i know oh no no it was so bizarre we were we were so bizarre. That sounds like Dora's idea, actually. It, it, it could have very well yeah. been. We had, but we had doctor's uniforms on. Really? And, oh, yeah. We had white coats on and, and goggles and, you know, because Dora was a costumer. And, was he? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In fact, <laughs> a little digression, but he, he had a Phantom Two Rolls Royce and we used to take and we had these turbans with jewels in them and everything and when my grandfather died he he had he left boxes and boxes of cigars you know really oh, good yeah. quality but you know bought literally maybe 50 100 boxes of cigars and they were all in our garage and in the uplifters and that's where I had my patching business. So Dora and I would take a box of cigars and we'd drive to Hollywood and it was a right-hand drive, you know, with these, with these turbans, on. turbans on and everything and, and smoking cigars and driving to Hollywood and Vine. And stuff. Just to get people just to, to look? Yeah, just for, you know, amusement's sake. So, you know, we're on the beach and we're in costume and, and the whole thing. And, and there was this ritual. I mean, it was like yeah. a big deal. And setting it up, mixing and, and tamping the, 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 the fuel into the rocket. And anyway, bottom line is, uh, and I, John, can't remember John's last name. He was the one with the bro- broken leg. And, yeah. you know, he lights the thing and hobbles back and dives in the bunker. And, uh, yeah, it did go off. Uh, supposedly, the sheriff was asleep in his car like two miles away or something, and it actually rattled the windows next to it, rattled his car, and, and it broke windows up on the pier and, you know. Just from the noise? From the concussion. Oh, my god! I gosh. mean, it was like a full-on bomb. It did not go up. Oh, it okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> there was shrapnel everywhere. I mean, we were so lucky we didn't get hurt. Wow. And, and Good thing you had that bunker. Yeah, oh, yeah. And yeah. so we're, you know, and we tried to take photographs of the whole thing. You know, we were going to photograph it in launch. And, you know, yeah. somebody had, you know, a camera. And yeah. anyway, long story short is uh, uh, the sheriff comes down the beach and he's got this, this, young kid in tow and in in his hand he's got this piece of shrapnel it's you know smoldering still probably. smoldering yeah kind of thing and all right who are the rocketeers you know 
And then Dora stands up. He goes, we're not racketeers. There are no racketeers here. <laughs> Obviously, you were, though. I oh, mean, what did they no, share? racketeers. Oh, racketeers. Oh. <laughs> Dora's, Dora's totally twisting this. Got his, it. His like, how dare you? How dare you call us? Right. We're racketeers. And... Finally, he confused the sheriff to the point where the sheriff just, you know, went, no more of this. And Really? Yeah, he he turned around and walked away because... Didn't want to argue. He had no proof, you know. Sure, and they, sure, And sure. the little kids pointing at us and, we're, you know, we're all laughing. Right. But know? that was kind of Dora's shtick, though, right? Was, was just kind of confuse them with, with comedy and kindness it, and charm or whatever? Yeah, yeah, just dazzle them with, uh, you know... Yeah. Footwork. Right. Uh, yeah, and it seemed to work. It it well in this case it did, but you know he didn't. We didn't get arrested. Right. We didn't have to pay for the windows and all of that. You know. So well, and we were lucky. No one got hurt. Of course. Yeah. Uh, the other story, which I thought was pretty poignant, was him doing some of that footwork when you guys went to lunch, and him it having the same effect and getting away with it, but it affected you differently. You viewed it through different lenses, well, it seemed. Well, yeah. I mean, and again, Dora, you know, well, uh, there there was a line in, of ethics. And, and, you know, the older, you know, when you're, when you're a kid and you're, you're a young kid and you're influenced by your peers and, and, you know, oh, you know, okay, shoplifting, that's okay, you know, or, you know, if somebody leaves something somewhere, it's okay, you know, if they're in the water or whatever. And so there's this minor petty stuff going on. And, 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 and you know, and then as you're, you're getting older, you realize that maybe this isn't too cool. This is not too good to do, you know. Yeah. You don't want it to happen to you. Why should you do it to someone else? And Right. So that line had been kind of drawn. Um, we we were um, we were all surfing trestles together, and and ended up by um, driving in one car. Four of us, you know, after surfing, uh, we're 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 driving through Laguna, and in North Laguna, on the ocean side of the of PCH was this this little restaurant that was run by an elderly couple called Vans. And mm-hmm. they were the nicest people in the world. I mean, you walked in there, you ordered a baked potato, they washed the potato and put it in the oven. And 45 minutes later, you got your your, your dinner or lunch, right? And they fed you until you were full. It wasn't like just one portion. It was like, do you want more? Yeah. And they would put two baked potatoes in for you, right? Like going and, home for dinner. Yeah, your mom exactly. Cooking. And they were just the nicest people. And so the four of us go in and we're famished and hadn't eaten all day. And Dora goes, you know, I'll, I don't even know if he said I'll buy you lunch. I don't think he did. I, you know, but we went in to eat. And so it's like late lunch it's four in the afternoon or something before dinner time before the place is loaded up with people and and mrs van is serving and she's the nicest and we we eat our you know whatever we had and and then you know the dessert you know cream pie or you know apple pie or whatever all those dessert possibilities and when and again 
when they brought dessert out, it was not just one piece. It was as many as you could eat, right? Yeah. So we finish up. Dora goes, I'll take care of the tab. Well, everybody kind of went, okay, we know what that means. You guys go out to the car. So, you know, we kind of excuse ourselves and walk out to the car and we're we're getting in the car and Dora goes to the bathroom and and uh, he comes back out and, and he's get just getting to the car and Mrs. Van walks out and she had this real high voice, boys, boys, I think you forgot to pay for your lunch. And Dora, you know, started, you know, going into this this diversionary uh, monologue and she goes, but that's okay. <clears throat> she goes, we'd like to buy you lunch. We really enjoyed having you in here, and we hope you come back again. And with that, she turned around, took the took the bill back in with her, turned around, walked away, and, you know, Dora gets in the car. I mean, it was like... She threw the ball in our court. Okay. Big time. So she knew. Oh, she knew exactly. That you guys were going to try to She knew exactly what happened. She knew exactly. And and she totally threw the ball in our court. And it made such a huge impression on me that that was it for me. I never crossed the line again, ever. So... So... Even though she knew you guys were going to skip out on the bill... She didn't know that when we... But once Before Dora started backpedaling, she figured out. Oh no, she knew once we were once Dora walked out the door. Right, okay. She knew that that Dora was trying to, or all of us were trying to scam them. But rather than making a scene and making you feel bad, she just thought, "I'm going to take the high road, offer them this gift." She did make everybody. She, I don't know whether she made Dora feel bad. That was going to be my question. Yeah, I don't know because. Dora, Dora's rationale was always, if I don't take it, somebody else will. That was his rationalization for being stepping, for being on the side of the line, ethics side of the sure. line he was on. And and I think until his, and that would have been a great question to ask Dora on his deathbed, mm. because you know the. The backside of the story is, is shortly after that, um, Dora was off traveling. Um, you know, we would see each other in other places in the world, you know, at various times or, you know, wherever it might be. But we never really hung out together okay. much after that, if at all. And and so, but again, uh, uh, you know, the ethics side of it, um, I, I just, you know, he was still somebody I I had some respect for. Yeah. Because of his his mind, uh, part partly because of his some parts of his mind and creativeness and and so forth and his passion as a surfer and 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 his some of his philosophy was probably dead on right on you yeah know? and so he was very interesting from that point of view but it wasn't he wasn't someone i was going to hang out with right. after that 
because of that. Sure. And so on his, you know, later on when he's a couple weeks uh, previous, uh, before he was on his way out, I mean, he was on his way out, but he went out a couple weeks after visiting him. I think during that visit, he was trying to apologize for some of his actions on the on the not so ethical side of right. the line and and maybe on his deathbed uh, I I would have asked him about that yeah that incident because it sure affected me yeah huge did you ever see Miss Van again Mrs. Van again Mrs. Van again I did You'd because go back for- I was, yeah, because I, you know, I was a local Laguna person, and you know, and and I did go back in there, and and never talked about it with her, but but I, you know, I think I didn't have to. Yeah, she already knew. Yeah, and she was way wiser than we were. Believe Just, me. Yeah, and and I mean it, it was such a. It was a life-changing thing, and she knew it would be. Right. Not with everybody necessarily, but right. but for sure, it it was a big big thing for Inter- me. Yeah. Huge, huge thing. Interesting. Thank you, Mickey Munoz, for the candid conversation. I really enjoyed our time together, and I know our fans appreciate the thoughtfulness and the time that you took to let us kind of have an insight into your world and your history. So thank you once again. Also, don't forget, this is only part one of our conversation. I'll be back in two weeks with part two, which involves conversations about work that Mickey's done, stunt doubling, uh, most notably for Sandra D in the iconic kind of surf-related film Gidget from the 1950s. He talks about his um, involvement with surf tech and the SUP world. And then also we talk about some of the most memorable waves he's caught in his life, including one particular wave at Desert Point that involves Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia and just all sorts of interesting stuff. I should also say that a lot of these stories are chronicled in Mickey's book, No Bad Waves, which was released by Patagonia Books, I think in 2011. And that's really was kind of the, the jumping off point that I used for our conversation. And uh, so definitely, if you enjoyed this conversation, check that book out because it gives you all of these stories and more actually much more than we could get into in the podcast so check that out we'll have a link to that book on our website surfsplendorpodcast.com also if you're new to the show 
go back on our website. There's every episode is archived for free. I think there's over 50 episodes now. And we have interviews with everybody from Sean Thompson to surfboard shapers like Tom Parrish and Eric Arakawa to publishers like Steve Pesman and Richard Graham from Surfing Magazine. And just a tremendous kind of breadth of, of personalities that we interview on this show. So go back, listen to that. Everything's available for free. And then lastly share the show with friends. That's the best way to ensure in the future of this show and to help it grow. And we, you are our only form of advertising, so we kind of rely on you to pass the word. So if you like this episode, just go post it on somebody's Facebook wall and tell them to listen to it. That's all that you can do for our show. So I believe that is all for today's episode. And we will be back next week with an all-new episode of Surf News and then the following week with part two of this conversation with Mickey Munoz. So until then, this is your host of Surf Splendor, David Scales, signing off and saying ciao.